Good morning, everyone. It's good to see a nice full room here. Welcome again to the Harris uh, Posse. It's good to have you uh, with us. And uh, my name is Nelson. It's my privilege uh, to get to open up the scriptures with you this morning to consider what good, what good news God's Spirit speaking through God's word may have uh, for us as a community today and for all those who are in this space, whether you consider artisan your home or not. So we're going to get right to it. And if you have a chair Bible nearby, I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 6. The page number will be up here on the screen. Just looking at the first seven verses of Acts chapter 6 this morning. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters... Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit, of the Spirit, and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is God's word. I want to just briefly pause and acknowledge a question that might be on some people's minds in connection with this text, and that is, why, is, why just men? Where are the women at? Um, We don't have time for a deep dive into this, but let me briefly say this. Even though the trajectory of New Testament teaching and the teaching of Jesus himself is very much toward gender equality, and there are many examples we could point to, to supporting this, clearly, at this point within the circle of those following the way of Jesus, patriarchy is still in place. So there's some work to do yet. There's a progression happening here. And in this series, we've been talking about the difference between descriptive and prescriptive texts, right? Something that describes and something that prescribes. This is a descriptive text. And it's not meant to be read as the final resting place of scripture on the inclusion of women in the church. Does that make sense? So if you've been around artisan for a while, you know that certainly isn't our practice. And so our reading of the Bible, in short is that gifting determines leadership and roles in the church, not gender. Can I get an amen? Okay. Let's pray and ask for God's continued help as we engage this text together. Lord Jesus, we recognize today in the church calendar is actually something called Christ the King Sunday, and so we declare you to be king. We declare you to be the one who is reigning, who is ruling, who is gathering all things and renewing all things. And we invite you, again, as we've just been singing, that you would come, Holy Spirit, come, Lord Jesus, reign in our own hearts, that we may be those who would more faithfully continue to reflect your image in the world. We ask for your help in opening this text this morning, that we would have uh, 
eyes that are open, imaginations that are also open wide, soft hearts to receive all that you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, two Sundays ago, uh, Scott shared a quote that we've referenced a number of times before in Artisan's uh, history. It's from historian Rodney Stark. He's kind of a go-to when it comes to our understanding of early church um, summaries. So here's a little summary from Rodney Stark once again. He wrote, Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with urgent urban problems. To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity and to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. We come back to this frequently because it offers a beautiful summary of what the early church was like, and it primes hope, it primes imagination for what the church could be like today. Stark actually claims that Christianity grew by 40% per decade during the first three centuries AD, and he also believes you can draw a line between much of that growth and the church's deep involvement in the fabric of their culture, as exemplified by this quote in this summary. So whether you agree with the specific numbers or the claim that he's making for this growth being attributed to social involvement, it makes us feel good as followers of Jesus to read stuff like this, to know that our history isn't just filled with horror stories. Some really good stuff has happened in the name of Jesus. It hasn't all been bad. And so things like this phrase, Christianity revitalized life in cities, ought to both challenge us and bring us a degree of comfort. And yet, when you come to a text like Acts 6, like we've just read, you realize a lot of gritty, messy stuff happened between the cracks of a neat historical summary. So we realize, in other words, that whatever revitalization happened in the wider culture because people took practicing the way of Jesus seriously, widespread, lasting social impact is never easy. It's always hard won. There's always a cost. There are problems that require solutions, just like in our text today. What was the problem? 6 verse 1, again, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. When did this happen? In the days when the number of disciples was increasing. In other words, days when the early church was notably on the rise. The picture we're given here is of an upwardly mobile, successful Jesus community. The church was killing it. But then there was tension. A problem emerged. Now, I won't spend a lot of time on this, but I feel like I have to let you all know that the Greek word for complained in verse 1 is gongizmos. Okay? So it refers to discontented grumbling, and the word is gongizmos. There's almost certainly zero connection between this word and our English word for gong. But when I realized what the word was, 
I couldn't help thinking how often the narrative in our lives, even on a small scale, is that things are coming along really well. The number of disciples are increasing, and then they turn into a gong gizmos show. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> this is onomatopoeic Greek with NJB. Okay, so what was all the gongis mossing about? What was the problem? Why did it come about? I promised I would get to what is the actual problem and not just have fun with words. So let's remember first what this community of Jesus followers was actually like. So there have been a couple of reminders of some big themes. End of chapter 2, in verses 44 and 45, we read this. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. At the end of chapter 4, verse 32, we're reminded all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. A few verses later, it says, there were no needy persons among them. It's a group of people that knew how to share. Tom Wright said it this way, This wasn't just a primitive form of communism, nor was it a sign, as some have suggested, that they thought the world was going to end very soon so they wouldn't be needing property anymore. No, it was rather a sign that they knew they were called to live as a single family. They saw themselves as the nucleus of God's renewed Israel. These were the new people of God, and they understood themselves that way. So just like any single family unit in first century Palestine, and many actually in today's world, their intent was to own everything together. Problems arise, however, when the family is suddenly double the size you expect it to be. So you think of an expected couple or a single mother realizing she is pregnant, not just with one child, but with twins. You've only got one crib, one car seat, one stroller, one set of everything, and now you need two. You never planned for this. So how are you going to cope when that happens? you got to figure something out. So the problem in the early church's case in Acts came to a head over the treatment of widows. We need to zoom out and understand what's going on here. But first, to observe this, it shows that already in the early church, the question of living as a single family had clear negative as well as positive implications. So typically... Widows would be taken care of among their own blood relations. Okay, so a spouse passes away, your family, your immediate bloodline family is going to take care of you. But those family ties appear to have been cut when people joined the new movement. It was that radical of an identification with this new family. So we had a baptism earlier this morning, Katie. And did you know that in some parts of the world, Even today, baptism meant not just being welcomed into a new family, the church, but actually saying goodbye to an existing family. We're not saying you should do that. But the new one, therefore, had to take on the obligations of the old. So that's the context here. Whatever we think about that, the distinction in verse 1 between Hellenistic Jews and Hebraic Jews is one of those things that has a variety of elements mixed together. So I'm not going to go too deep a dive here as well, but it would touch on things like geography, language, and culture. So in other words, Hellenistic Jews were those that came from the diaspora, Jews that had been spread throughout um, uh, the, early, the ancient world, um, and they settled in Palestine and spoke Greek. 
Hebraic Jews would have been natives of Palestine and their mother tongue was Aramaic. But again, the distinctions would have included culture also. So Hellenistic Jews not only spoke Greek, but behaved like Greeks. While the Hebraic Jews not only spoke Aramaic, but they were deeply immersed in Hebrew ways of thinking and being. Tom Wright puts it this way, whenever even a small number of people try to live together, let alone to share resources, sometimes even tiny distinctions of background and culture can loom very large and have serious consequences. You know about this if you've ever had a roommate. You know about this if you've ever gone through pre-marriage counseling. And you start to think about when you're marrying someone, you're also marrying that person's background and culture. And how are you going to bring those two realities together under the same roof and in the same relationship? So it's important to read this story from a posture of grace, a posture of compassion and understanding. And while there had always been rivalry between these groups, there is no sense that this was a deliberate oversight. What seems clear from the text is that the food distribution problem was an organizational one. What was needed was a way to organize and distribute the food fairly, but then also to settle the complaint. Another component to the problem, when we look at this from the apostles' point of view, is that social administration was threatening to occupy all their time. And if they allowed that to happen, they would be kept from prioritizing the work Christ had specifically called them to which was preaching and teaching. So, multifaceted problem. What did the apostles do? Let's begin by noticing what they didn't do. So they didn't just say, ah, you know what? We shouldn't worry too much about this. It'll kind of sort itself out. We got to keep this growth trajectory happening here. There is a season of really popular in church planting circles, momentum. We have momentum. We can't afford to jeopardize this. They didn't do that. In other words, they didn't ignore the need. Far from it. They addressed it as soon as they became aware that gongismos was going on. As soon as the complaining reached their ears, they didn't ignore the need, but neither did they rush out to do the work themselves. Now, this, of course, wasn't the first administrative crisis that had occurred within the grand narrative of God's people. If you think about the Exodus story, so Moses and the people had been brought out of Egypt miraculously, and so they're in the early days of wandering around in the desert, and Moses was the only one, the scripture tells us, settling disputes for the people. So when, just, okay, when you travel in caravan, in a desert, on foot, with thousands of humans, there's going to be a few interpersonal challenges. So just to put ourselves in their shoes for a moment, their sandals for a moment. In Exodus 18... It came to a head. Jethro, a priest who also happened to be Moses' father-in-law, realized that Moses was sometimes hearing cases as a judge for the people, quote, from morning until evening. And so Jethro took Moses aside, and if I can get my page open to that part, I will read it. Here's what he said. What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will not only wear yourselves out, the work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. So pretty clear. 
And what follows is a few more verses. Essentially, Jethro is saying, Moses, it's time you learn how to delegate. Now, we don't know whether this story came to the apostles' mind or not, but something that would have been fresh in their memory was what we might call the Jesus approach to delegation and ministry involvement. In Jesus' time on earth with these apostles, he was always sharing his work with them. So here again, in the face of this problem, the apostles saw a clear opportunity to draw the circle wider, to engage more people in active, recognized, and honorable work. One more thing they didn't do was rush ahead to impose a solution. The answer to this dilemma wasn't arrived at by a couple guys in a room. They actually called the disciples all together to share the problem with them. Verse 2, this is what they said. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Now, I don't know how that lands on you. It might be tempting for some of us to hear the apostles' word in such a way that they were somehow above food distribution. But there's no hint that that's actually what's going on here. There's no sense that the apostles saw social work as inferior to pastoral work or beneath their dignity. It was entirely a question of calling. Here's what one author said. There is no hierarchical spirit here. Jesus' lessons on leadership had not been forgotten. The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, but you are not to be like that. The one who rules should not be like the one who serves. I am among you as one who serves. What a different Christian history we would look back on today had that become the charter of the church. There are no ordinary Christians the same God is in all and at work through all. So there are plenty of examples of the lording it over style of leadership, right? The kind that would have ignored the problem of a food distribution oversight. The kind that simply says, you know, are my needs being taken care of? Then that's probably all I need to concern myself with. But Jesus said clearly, you are not to be like that. So did Mr. Rogers, basically, put it this way. We live in a world in which we need to share responsibility. It's easy to say, it's not my child, it's not my community, it's not my world, not my problem. Then there are those who see the need and respond. I consider those people my heroes. So did Andrea Lowen, by the way. Here's what Andrea Lowen said. When faced with a big situation, we often feel like we have nothing to offer. Whether it's the monumental need of homelessness on our own li- or our own life's demands, it's easy to feel like we can't even begin to address the problem and would be foolish to even try. But instead of starting with helplessness, what if we start by evaluating what we do have and then maybe even try contributing that to the problem? Once a gift is shared, its impact can multiply in ways we never would have expected beforehand. Straight fire there. Straight fire from Andrea Lowen, sitting right here, ladies and gentlemen. To get to a solution, the apostles needed to clarify their own ministry priorities. And so that's what they're doing here. So when they say in verse 2, it would not be right, the verb there for be right is aresco. It can also be translated as pleasing, agreeable, desirable, So in context, we ought to understand this to mean desirable to God. So in other words, it's as though they're saying God's desire is that we stick with the priorities God has called us to. Which raises a question. How are you and I reflecting God in the work 
that we're called to? Do we even see or apprehend the ways in which we serve and give ourselves to the world as being an expression of God's work? I want to hang out here for just a few moments because it's easy for, to forget that, as Amy Sherman puts it, human labor, all of it, whatever it looks like, has intrinsic value because in it we image or reflect our creator. In his book, Faith Goes to Work, Robert Banks speaks of God as our vocational model, describing the various sorts of work God does and how our many and varied human vocations or callings give expression to these aspects of God's work. So I want to try a little experiment this morning, if you're all willing. Um, I'm going to share some categories for God's labors, some big headings, and then I'm going to list a bunch of vocations. And as I do, if you hear yours, would you stand if you're able? Okay? These are vocations and callings that people are generally paid to do, but not necessarily. So I want to acknowledge that we all participate in God's labor, and sometimes in ways that do not generate income. And I also want to acknowledge some of us might be unemployed at the moment, some of us may be unable to work, or are in between jobs. So my intent in inviting us to stand is that we're all seen and valued for the different ways in which we express the image of God. Is that clear? Does that kind of make sense? So if you're able and you hear your vocation, would you please stand as you hear it and remain standing? So the first big heading we could call redemptive work. The redemptive work is essentially what we think of as God's saving and reconciling actions. So humans participate in this kind of work as pastors, all right, lead up, counselors, and peacemakers, as do writers, artists, producers, songwriters, poets, and actors who help to shape and share redemptive stories, novels, songs, films, performances, and other works. Second big category, creative work. These things could go under different headings, okay? So just acknowledging that and let's be okay with it, all right? So creative work, God's fashioning of the physical and human world. So as Christians, we affirm God gives humans creativity. So people who work in the arts display this. So do a wide variety of craftspeople, potters, weavers, seamstresses and tailors, interior designers, metal workers, carpenters, builders, fashion designers, architects, novelists, and urban planners. All right, there's a few more. Providential work by which we understand God's provision for and sustaining of humans in creation. So this is another way of naming all that God does to maintain the universe and human life. Thus, bureaucrats, public utility workers, public policymakers, shopkeepers, career counselors, shipbuilders, farmers, firefighters, printers, transport workers, IT specialists, entrepreneurs, bankers and brokers, meteorologists, research technicians, civil servants, business school professors, mechanics, engineers, statisticians, plumbers, welders, janitors, all who help keep the economic and political order working smoothly reflect this aspect of God's labor. Three more. Justice work, God's maintenance of justice. Judges, lawyers, paralegals, government regulators, legal secretaries, city managers, prison wardens and guards, policy researchers and advocates, law professors, 
diplomats, supervisors, administrators, law enforcement personnel, all participate in God's work of maintaining justice. Compassionate work. God's involvement in comforting, healing, guiding, and shepherding. Doctors, nurses, paramedics, psychologists, therapists, social workers, pharmacists, community workers, stay-at-home parents, nonprofit directors, emergency medical technicians, counselors, and welfare agents all reflect this aspect of God's labor. And lastly, I know we're going to miss some. Revelatory work, God's work to enlighten truth. Preachers, scientists, educators, and teachers, podcasters, homeschoolers, journalists, scholars, and writers are all involved in this sort of work. Who did I miss? Stand up and say what yours are, just as we go. Just stand up wherever you are, shout it out. All right. Go quick. Marketer. Thank you. Anyone else? Airbnb operators. Absolutely, we need those. It's great. Yeah. Encouragers. Yeah. Should be all of us. Standing. That's great. I know, again, acknowledging we missed some, I want to name some of us maybe grieving the loss of work or in transition, hopeful for something new. I want to thank you for participating. Have a seat. Um, Sherman, again, summarizes in this way. She says, in all these various ways, God the Father continues his creative, sustaining, and redeeming work through our human labor. This gives our work great dignity and purpose. Vocational stewardship starts with celebrating the work itself and recognizing that God cares about it and is accomplishing his purposes through it. So in the spirit of October, which is behind us, but is it ever? Really, turn to someone beside you and say, I see you and I celebrate the way you image God in the world. Just beside you, I see you and I celebrate the way you image God in the world. Okay. Some of you are saying more things. Now, um, this is supposed to be a shorter sermon, given that we had um, a baptism and stuff, and we've covered two verses so far, so pretty solid pacing. I'm going to try to summarize what happens next from verses 3 to 6 really quickly. Again, as we've said, the apostles don't impose a solution. They present a proposal, which essentially boils down to a suggestion that the community choose seven people who will take responsibility for equitable food distribution to image God the way they were meant to so that the apostles can do likewise, prioritizing prayer and preaching. Verse 5 says, this proposal pleased the whole group. I don't know how long the meeting was. Maybe it was really quick. Maybe there was some discussion. Maybe there were some motions passed, and maybe they were sort of defeated. But then eventually they reached consensus. And then they proceeded to choose some people who met the qualifications necessary. We're going to come back to those in a moment. But just want to highlight one more, once more what I see as the crux of this story. 
one writer names the vital principle of the text like this. God calls all God's people to ministry. God calls different people to different ministries. And those called to prayer in the ministry of the word must on no account allow themselves to be distracted from their priorities. So here's a related takeaway. We need to stop referring to pastors alone as those called to the ministry. Or of ordination as entering the ministry. So we use that definitive article, the, what it does is perpetuate the notion that ordained pastor is the only ministry that exists. It essentially erases the idea I was trying to get at a moment ago and for which we took some time to stand and to be seen. That all followers of Jesus, without exception, are called to give their lives to ministry in the name of Christ. We need to be intentional about recovering a wide vision of vocation. Let's come back to the question of qualifications. The seven were to be known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. Full of the Spirit and wisdom. What was primary? That they be people of the Spirit. People who are known to exhibit the fruit of a Spirit-filled life. People who, out of their being, ooze love and joy and peace and forbearance and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I love how Eugene speaks of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. But what happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives, much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that a basic Holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. Is it surprising to anyone else that this qualification, being full of the Spirit, was most important, given that the task was supervising and probably participating in giving food to needy people? If it's surprising, I'm not sure it should be. If it is, maybe we need to consider whether we might be a little too prone to draw lines that shouldn't be there, like between sacred and secular, like between spiritual ministry and practical ministry. Someone said it this way, all of life is spiritual. You don't have a spiritual life. You are a spiritual life. Every task we give ourselves to as part of God's church is spiritual ministry. As such, it calls for an inner disposition that's oriented toward God. It calls for wholehearted openness to the Spirit. Now, notice also that being filled with the Spirit is a quality of life that others can and should recognize. They were known to be full of the Spirit, as opposed to one we can claim for ourselves. I noted in a previous sermon that Christian was actually not originally a self-imposed identifier or self-chosen identifier. People simply observed the early church behaving like little Christs, and then they called them Christian. I'm starting to wonder if a similar response would be prudent if someone asks, hey, are you filled with the Spirit? I don't know. You tell me. 
what are you seeing? What are you noticing in my life? Full of the spirit and wisdom. So wisdom was also required, by which we mean a spiritual vibrancy and commitment needed to be blended with mature people skills. So the ability to handle situations where delicate and deep human vulnerabilities are involved. So what was the result of all this? What happened after the apostles addressed this problem? In learning to delegate like they did, prioritizing their own work, script tells us, or the text tells us, that the word of God spread. The word of God spread. Makes sense. People were imaging God as they were meant to. The apostles' priority of preaching and prayer were adhered to. And yet, no matter how much energy anyone puts into the task of preaching or teaching the message of Jesus that stands on the shoulders of scriptural witness, no matter how much energy is put into explaining, seeking to help people embody the good news, it's still God's work. Not the preachers, not the teachers, not the ministry. Tom Wright, one more time. Making the word of God, as it were, a kind of autonomous agent, if you like, is, if you like, a way of keeping the apostles in their place. They are not growing the church. God is growing the church and using their ministry of teaching and preaching as a primary way of doing so. So as we consider a response to that which we've heard this morning, there are a number of questions we could ask ourselves, and some of that may already be going on in your own hearts. Here are just a few that I want to put up to read, to leave some silence for us to sit with Jesus for a moment, and then I'll say a short prayer to conclude and invite us to the Lord's table. One question we could consider is how might we learn to see our vocations as being an expression of God's labor? How might we learn to see our vocations as being expressions of God's labor? Second question, how might I support those called to preach and teach by prioritizing that which God has called me to do? Third, how might I live with greater openness to the Spirit in this season? As we come to quiet for just a moment, I'm reminded of Acts chapter 2, when Peter quoted the prophet Joel and his promise that in the last days, the Spirit would pour, be poured out on all flesh, women and men, no exceptions. We all have the Spirit. We all have the inner teacher. So let's together in the silence trust that the Spirit both wants to speak and in fact will speak <clears throat> as we attend uh, to the Spirit in our inner being. So let's have a brief moment of silence to consider and then I'll say a short prayer to conclude and we'll come to the table. <clears throat> 